the Buddha spoke um, often and quite eloquently about the power of mind to shape our reality, to shape our experience of reality. I want to read the first pair of verses in the Dhammapada, which is a, a group of verse sayings of the Buddha. I couldn't find a translation I was crazy about. This is what comes of knowing a very little bit of Pali. Not enough to actually do anything constructive, but just enough not to be satisfied with everything I see. Very helpful. Anyway. All mental phenomena have mind as their forerunner. They have mind as their chief. They are mind made. If one speaks or act with an impure mind, suffering follows one just as the wheel follows the foot of the ox that draws the cart. And then the paired couplet, and I'm using a different translation for the second one. Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness follows one like a shadow that never leaves. Very powerful, the effect of our thoughts, the effect of the mind. Sylvia spoke briefly the other night about the Eightfold Path, the path of practice that we're engaged on now. And I want to speak about the second aspect of the path. The first one, right or wholesome, correct understanding, really speaks to how we understand life, the world, ourselves. First aspect of the path. And then the second path factor, variously translated as right or wholesome attitude, or right thought, right intention. And this really grows from our understanding, how we understand ourselves in the world then informs how we think about the world, how we think, what our intentions are. And this second one, intentions, our thought, our attitude, is the crucial link between understanding and action. Because how we think is how we then act in the world. And in fact, the next three factors of the path are dealing with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And just a very simple example, very basic. There's a sense of understanding that perhaps there's more to reality, to my own life, than is apparent on the surface, in the superficial glance. That kind of understanding that there's something more tends to give rise to some thought or intention of let me investigate. 
Let me try meditation. Let me try some spiritual path of learning more. And that intention, that thought, then gives rise to the action. And here you all are, sitting here for nine days. Beginning from understanding, but then leading, the understanding leading to an attitude or a thought that leads to action. And then, of course, the action that has you all sitting here leads to deepening of mindfulness, concentration, and energy, which are the last three of the Eightfold Path. And that, in turn, leads to deeper seeing into the nature of who and what we are, more understanding. You know, it's a circle. We're back at the beginning of the mandala again. So tonight I want to talk specifically about the effects of wholesome attitude. What are they? What does it refer to? These are attitudes, wholesome attitudes of mind, and there's several that are specifically spoken of. Intentions that they shine through our awareness more clearly as our wisdom develops. And I, I use this language quite deliberately when it shines through rather than um, manufactured or dead or developed even because it's not as if these this attitude, wholesome attitudes of mind are something foreign to our being or something that we need to go out and manufacture and try to artificially grasp onto ourselves, you know. It's actually part of who or what we already are. We begin to arise spontaneously the more that we bring our attention to this moment, the more that we investigate and come to see what we actually are. Wholesome attitudes of mind, intentions of mind, become more and more spontaneous expressions of our understanding. Again, I love to use the metaphor of the sun as being the luminous nature of mind. It's always there. And the more that we pay attention, the less we get so involved in the clouds that we think it's all there is. The more we're aware of the sun. But the sun's always there. We just become more aware of it. So, classically speaking of right or wholesome attitude, thought, intention, includes three broad areas, and I'd just like to speak a little about each of them. More a reminder, you know, bring up in each of us a reminder of what we are how we can be. These are the attitudes of non-greed or renunciation, which balances the confusion of greed. Second one is that of goodwill or metta, friendliness, loving kindness. Obviously, balancing the inclination of mind of aversion, ill will. And the third is the attitude of harmlessness, 
of compassion, balancing cruelty or harmfulness. And a tendency to be in touch with these attitudes of mind, for these attitudes to arise in a moment as a response to a situation, strengthening naturally, simply through our mindfulness practice. I promise, it may not feel like it. A lot of times in sitting, it seems like what we're seeing is just more greed, more ill will, more negativity. And sometimes you're a much nicer person, at least you thought you were, before you started sitting. But I promise it's really working the other way around. A very simple example of how mindfulness is really working to strengthen me. When there's no understanding, there's not clear understanding, no understanding of the process whereby desire brings suffering in its way. And we don't understand that. And whenever thought comes up of I want this or I want that, then we naturally spring into action to try and achieve that. And that's how most of this culture spends most of its time. And that can be something really minor from wanting seconds at lunch, wanting a better little foam pad under your cushion, wanting cherry lifesavers, you know, it can be really mundane, to all the way up to uh, what we see happening in the world, you know, wanting more land, wanting more oil, wanting some sense of national safety, whatever. So from small to really large scale, when there's not this understanding that desire and suffering, the actions that manifest, the thought of wanting something, the actions that manifest it, come from confusion and can breed incredible pain and suffering and conflict. Or at its least manifestation, it can simply be increasing unsatisfactoriness. Because the seconds at once don't really do it, do they? You know, the foamy doesn't really take care of it. So that's kind of a normal way of being. But as we're sitting here, day in and day out, and really watching the process of desire and watching our continued efforts to fulfill it, the ones that, you know, are somehow in our power to fulfill here, you really start to get it from paying attention. There's no peace coming from this. There's no lasting satisfaction coming from fulfilling desire. And so, as this understanding comes in, fulfilling desire, is not bringing happiness, from our mindfulness of just watching this, quite naturally, our thoughts change. And when the thought comes up, gosh, I think I should get up now and have a cup of tea, and the thought comes, no need to do that. And just quite naturally, our actions change. It's not some big deal, but it actually is a big deal. And you find that's like a natural sense of renunciation. No forcing, but growing out of our understanding that's coming from this mindfulness practice. Not necessarily dramatic. 
but I feel it's very helpful and important to notice and acknowledge these little moments, these little actions of thought, speech, or body that are coming from intentions of kindness, of non-greed, generosity, compassion. I see it sort of like positive reinforcement. Just the noticing of it. Sometimes we get so focused on seeing the greed and the ill will and the self-judgment that we let a moment of sense, well, oh, you don't really need that. Pass by. Not that we want to hold on to it, but it's important to acknowledge also. Oh, there was a moment of non-greed arising in the mind. It's very helpful. So these attitudes, understanding, it arises, it arises quite naturally as our mindfulness increases, as our understanding deepens. I just want to say now, I feel it's very important not to set up these attitudes or any other as some ideal. Now, it happens a lot in spiritual practice that we have some ideal of I should be or the end of the practice is to be this loving, compassionate, generous person and then try to force ourselves to fit that model. But it's not what's really genuinely arising. So I'm not talking about, you know, forcing ourselves or denying what's actually arising in a moment important is to be really honest. True wisdom demands absolute honesty with ourselves with whatever's arising in the moment. And I know that we can trust that honesty, that willingness to be with whatever's arising, that through that will come the understanding that of itself these beautiful qualities of mind are able to manifest. But it can't come through forcing or pretense and trying to make ourselves pretend to be other than we are. So I just feel that's important and to know that we don't have to pretend to be other than we are. That non-greed, friendliness, metta, compassion do arise from our understanding quite naturally, it is a more true manifestation of our being. We don't need to force it. So having said that, I'll flip to the other side because everything's a paradox. And that what's quite interesting is that at times we actually do have a choice as to where we let the mind dwell. We might not have a choice as to what what situations come up, what immediate one thought comes up, but we often do have a choice as to how we respond to the situation and where, whether or not we want to let the mind dwell there. The Buddha said, whatever one reflects upon frequently, towards that the mind will naturally incline. It's fairly obvious. And if we sit and daydream for, say, an hour 
about something that we really want when we leave here, just the longer we stay lost in that daydream, the easier it is for the mind to go back to that place. We have a choice more than we think. We really feel we don't need to feel enslaved by the habits of our mind. They're not set in concrete, though it might feel that way at times. We can't deny the arising of the habits of mind when they're arising in a moment, but we can choose very often how to respond. The quotation from Nisargadatta, you cannot escape from your obsessions, but you can cease nurturing them. I really think that's quite lovely. So instead of denying them, we simply cease nurturing them. I don't mean it's easy. The force of habit is really quite strong. And especially the habit of mind I'm talking about now is that towards greed, towards aversion, towards confusion. This is a little comic I cut out once that I think is like a, uh, an attitude quiz. Which way does your mind incline? That's how easily the habits are ingrained. It's like six little, six little episodes. You wander alone down a crowded city street, jostled in the bustle, solitary yet surrounded, you think, these people are multiple choice. A, my brothers, my sisters. B, perverts. <laughs> Probably pickaxe murderers. C, I sure could go for a chili dog. True. Amid the crowd, a stranger slowly turns. As his eyes meet yours, you muse, A, I know what he feels. He feels fear. He feels hope. B. Why is that pervert looking at me? <laughs> C. Maybe a pepperoni pizza with olives. <laughs> and it goes on in the last one. Is, Further down, construction workers are tearing the street to rubble. How symbolic, you marvel. It reminds me of A, the path of life. B, the highway to hell. C, Rocky Road, my favorite flavor. These habitual inclinations, they just come up when we're not paying attention. But we do have a choice. And it's not like one life choice. Okay, from now on, I'm going to stop being an aversive type. I tried that a while ago. It didn't work. But in each moment, each moment, there is a choice. In each moment, there's a choice of whether to go along with the aversion that arises or whether to just let it be. Whether to go along with the greed to see the desire arise and say, no, I don't need that right now. And if working with this right attitude is about a willingness to greet each moment of choice as a chance to learn, a chance to grow out of the dullness of our habits of mind, not about expectations of perfection. You know, and it's not another standard to judge ourselves against. But it's about opening 
to use each moment as a learning possibility. Learning makes life quite vital, quite rich. The learning never ends. Okay, so I'd like to speak a little about each of these three attitudes. First, attitude or thought guided by non-greed or renunciation. I don't know, renunciation has kind of a bad rap in our culture. At any rate, it's not specifically supported. Renunciation here is not meaning enforced asceticism. Really, I experience it much more as a sense of inner contentment. Renunciation being not being so caught up in needing, in acquiring, in wanting. And when we're not caught up, in searching outward for something, there's so much more capacity for appreciating what's right here, right now. It's a sense of ease, of contentment, simplicity. And I would imagine that most or all of you will have experienced simple moments of that here on the retreat. Again, mathematics. But you know a moment where you're sitting having a cup of tea and it's just so fulfilling. There's such a sense of appreciation of that. Or looking at a sunset and just feeling the wind, seeing the little chickadees out back. Something not specifically dramatic, but there's a sense of real inner contentment, appreciation of that momentary experience. Now, it's not because that's the best cup of tea that was ever made, or the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen in your life. It's in that moment, the mind and heart is quiet. There's no desire in the mind. There's no reaching out. And so, with this sense of inner contentment, this simple being in the moment, there's great appreciation for whatever it is that we happen to be experiencing. This sense of renunciation, non-greed, at least in my experience, runs quite counter to the input, the information that comes in from from our society. Um, Just the word itself, renunciation, often brings up connotations, you know, of forced asceticism, intentional suffering, a kind of grimness. And it's not that at all. You know, in our society, the sort of giving things up to many people's eyes means the suffering. Just looking at the ads, I was reading the New York Times magazine the other day, and the ads in that are amazing. You know, full-page ads for $2,000 watches and perfume that costs hundreds of dollars for a little bottle and, you know, just on and on and on. And the intention, and often the effect, is to make them think, God, I really need that. Or just looking at it, you feel a lack because one could never afford it. And really, most of the media input goes along in that direction, creating new needs. Consumerism runs on that we need more and more things. 
and often um, talking to people that I meet that I don't really know, or even my family sometimes, and they say, well, you don't have this or you don't have that, something that I never really thought about wanting, and there'll be a sense of, oh, that must be really hard not to have such and so. And it never even occurred to me. But not having, living simply, is equated with suffering in this society. And it's just not true. Suzuki Roshi says, Renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of this world, but in accepting that they go away. Really accepting that whatever we have is going to go away. And that's okay. I'd like to mention a couple of reflections which I find arise quite naturally as practice continues, which I find really help the mind incline towards non-greed, towards this natural sense of simplicity. One is understanding that it seems we inevitably come to on deeper and deeper levels, which I've already mentioned, is understanding the unsatisfactoriness which is inherent in desire itself. Not thinking, oh, desire is bad, I should extirpate it, but really understanding how unsatisfying it is. And this retreat is a really good setup for that, because in a, in a space of sort of forced outer renunciation, taken away, this form takes away a lot of things that you could normally do or get to satisfy desire. And so here, it's by choice, but it's also by force once we've got you in here. You know, you're forced to renounce a lot of things. But it's a fantastic chance to explore the nature of desire because most of the desires that come up here you can't gratify. Not if you want to stay here. Not if you want to stay on the street. Most people say, well, once I'm here, I'm going to stay. You know, I'm not going to run out just to have a pizza. So, since you can't gratify it, the kind of enforced renunciation helps us, through our experience, shift through this barrage, this maze of desires that we're, and ways to fulfill it that we're greeted with on a daily basis in our normal life. And we really start to experience the futility of all that. And it's really, you have to try really hard not to notice that desires and suffering. Two quotations I love about this. One from Isaac Singer. Hell is made up of yearning. The wicked don't roast on beds of nails. They sit on comfortable chairs and are tortured with desire. <laughs> and this is from Basho, Japanese poet. This just more evokes to me the endless nature of craving. Though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. This is so nice. It's just desire for the sake of desire. Desire breeds desire. 
And that's what keeps us in this sense of bondage. Sayala Upandita said once that pursuing sense pleasures is a form of self-oppression because it's tiring and insatiable. So the more we really notice, the more we're mindful of desire and the futility of it, quite naturally the mind begins to incline towards renunciation. By renunciation meaning a turning away from craving and its desire for gratification. Turning away from craving does not necessarily have to mean turning away from the things of the world, but turning away from a craving for things. And I found in my life that this leads quite naturally to a more sense of simplicity, both outer in the things of my life and inner, just in the things that I want. Yeah, I still want plenty of things, but they're, they're less. And it's easier to say, oh, you know, well, tomorrow I don't care, and let it go. I learned a lot about the sense of simplicity and the, the, the beauty, the real joy that can come to living in a simple way. Uh, when some years ago, for a period of several months, I was living in Thailand as a Buddhist nun. And one lives quite simply. And the first few months were quite difficult. There's massive aversion attacks, real kind of kicking and fighting and that's wanting to be more comfortable, wanting better food, wanting not to be hot, not wanting bugs, just really wanting things to be different from how they were. And the inevitable culture shock of giving up, for me, with all the comfort that we have in this culture. But after two or three months, it really started to shift. And by the end of the time, my situation was no more comfortable. I had no more things than I'd had in the beginning. But there was such a sense in that simplicity. There was such a sense of appreciation and joy for stuff that I would normally not even have noticed in my comfort surrounded normal life. And I remember, I know I'm not remembering this like through the haze of memories because we were writing about it at the time, that it was really one of the happiest and simplest times of my life. Really joyful. Not because anything fantastic was happening. No, just get up, go get food, sit a little, walk in the woods, wash my clothes. It's very mundane on the outer level. But that sense of not wanting, I really understood in some ways what the purpose of a renunciate life in that form could be, to really get a sense of the joy that can come from a mind that isn't so engaged in getting and having. And as I just mentioned before, we all have moments like that. We've had moments like that here in practice. We have many moments like that when you're not here. It's still in our life practice. Acknowledge those. It's important. It's an important counterbalance to our 
ingrained habit of thinking more means more happy. In a way, the whole practice is a process of deepening letting go. And and actually, enlightenment is the ultimate letting go. It's not about getting something, you know. You can't get enlightenment, contradiction in time. It's about the ultimate letting go. non-greed. Second intention or like thought or attitude that becomes more manifest is that of goodwill or friendliness, metta, loving kindness, thoughts guided by goodwill. And in a way that can translate in our experience here to simply an openness to whatever circumstance presents itself. Which in effect is what this mindfulness practice is. And I've often felt actually that the cultivation of mindfulness in a moment is in a way an expression of goodwill, of metta. Because when in a moment of experience, whatever arises, the breath, a pain, a sound, whatever, when the attitude in that noting moment is one of openness, acceptance, fine, this is here, let's be with it. Whether it's to a noting moment or to a situation in life, that really is in that moment the intention, the attitude of goodwill, of kindness, of friendliness, openness to whatever's presenting itself in this moment. And all the times that, instead of meeting something with friendliness, which is often we meet it with resentment or ill will or wishing it was different, lack of self-acceptance. Again, this obviously comes from aversion, the flip side. And one moment of acceptance, just one moment of acceptance of what's arising, is the attitude of goodwill. It's not like we have to do it over and over to cultivate that attitude. In that moment, that is the expression of friendliness, of goodwill. It's important to recognize this as a possibility, as a living expression that we can manifest and experience over and over, no matter how difficult our experience might be in a moment. This is Thich Nhat Hanh speaking about relationship to anger, but it could apply to anything. I have to deal with my anger with care, with love, with tenderness, with nonviolence. We do not need to consider anger, hatred, as enemies we have to fight to destroy. That would be like transforming yourself into a battlefield tearing yourself into parts. If you struggle in that way, you do violence to yourself. So with this attitude of goodwill, rather than doing violence to ourselves, in the moment we're more open to a situation. Again, this sense of no matter how difficult a situation, we can use it as a stepping stone rather than an obstacle. And some people would say, well, we need 
difficult situations because that's how we grow. There's a story I love about the Jeep. We had a community in, in France, I believe, quite a lot of people living together under his guidance. And there was one man who was extremely difficult and drove everybody crazy and nobody liked him or liked to be around him. And I guess people weren't very nice to him either and he just got set up one time and left. And everyone said, thank God, we're rid of him. Now we can really get down to what community is about. And the youth went after him and tried to talk him into coming back. And the guy said, forget it. You know, I don't want to come back here. Other people aren't nice to me. Who wants to live there? So the Jew said, I'll pay you to come back. <laughs> and so he came back here. He said, what's he going to that for? It's so nice without him. And he said, no, you need this guy. Very important part of the community. <laughs> I mean, I, really, my belief is that we don't need to go out and look for trouble in our lives. <laughs> Enough of it, but it kind of makes the point. Another example, this is a true example, that I really love about the possibility for transformation, the extraordinarily difficult and debilitating circumstance through the power of this attitude of mind of goodwill. Of friendliness. This is a, I cut this out of a paper a few years ago that a woman, it says, in triumphant return, ex-patient takes post at mental hospital. And it's about a woman who says she was 17 and clinically depressed when she was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic and placed in a state mental hospital. She remained inside for 17 years. Now, fittingly for a woman, his antidote to perversity, to adversity, or perseverance and forgiveness, she has returned as a full-time administrator at the same hospital. And she says, I wouldn't have grown one bit if I didn't learn to forgive. If you don't forgive your parents or your children or yourself, you don't get beyond that anger. And then it just goes on and on about all the, a lot of other difficulties in her life death of her husband and cancer and death by fire of some other people in her family and just her deep sense of not blaming and it's not a fault forgiveness you know but a deep sense of that to learn to forgive and not dwelling in the pain of the past that one she says one can really reach out to a brighter future and i find it quite inspiring because it's true, and it's not a phony sense of, you know, pretending to forgive, but the actual experience over many, many years of the strength of the attitude of mind, of goodwill. You know, she's a woman who is not stuck, and nor are we. None of us is stuck and needs to be stuck. I do want to emphasize, though, that it, it is a gradual process. Again, not to set up an ideal of, no matter how badly one might have suffered or been hurt, well, I should just be able to forgive this tomorrow and move on. 
again, to, to really respect and be honest with what's arising in our experience. And then from this truth, the attitude of goodwill of Mecca will arise. A whole other way of being becomes a possibility. The, I love the saying from the Carlos Castaneda books that a warrior sees everything as a challenge, while an ordinary person sees everything as a blessing or a curse. A challenge. Goodwill does not equal passivity or non-action. A lot of times people ask about that. You know, they say, well, if we just be open to whatever happens, does that mean we just accept abuse and don't act appropriately? And it's, that's not the case at all. But actually, the meeting of situation is openness, without anger, without blame. You can see so much more clearly what's appropriate action in that situation. And the energy is actually much more available to then act in that appropriate way. It's not so bound up in negativity, or fear, or self-blame, or out-of-blame. So, the attitude of mind of metta is not at all passive. It leads to quite appropriate action. Metta for oneself, metta for the other people involved. Okay, and so the third attitude, intention, quite closely related, is that of non-harming, of thought or intention guided by compassion. And in many cases, the natural, the action of compassion is the natural outflow of that, the thought of kindness, of metta, thought of non-harming. We don't have to go looking far afield to begin to experience and observe both what the intention, the thought of compassion in the mind can feel like, and also the power of that to affect our action. We can start right here in this moment, in the sitting and walking and rest of the day practice, with compassion for oneself, with compassion for what one is experiencing. And I can't overemphasize the importance of allowing and acknowledging and developing compassion for oneself. It's not selfish. Thich Nhat Hanh again. If you cannot be compassionate towards yourself, you will not be able to be compassionate to others. And just in my experience, this is so true. What we're doing here is often extremely difficult. And I know many, talking to many people in interviews, you know, this is really hard. You know, it's a surprise. Stephen Levine said once, <laughs> we experience many forms of hell as we watch the mind and body. And it's really true. You know, we're meeting all our demons just sitting here quietly on this pillow. Whatever they are, anger, fear, loneliness, self-hatred, lust, resistance, boredom, on and on. And how are we greeting 
these difficult experiences? What about compassion for this suffering? Start to notice how the intention of mind, how the thought of mind expresses itself just in one noting moment. Notice the tone of the note. You know, is it thinking? It tells you something. Notice the tone of the commentary, the running commentary. Maybe you don't have running commentary. I know I have endless running commentary. Notice the quality of that. Is it, what's wrong with you? You're off of the breath again. You stupid, what are you having another pain like that? Can't you learn to sit right? You were angry already half the day yesterday. You're angry again. Get over it. Notice, notice what's going on. It's so often that we experience these really painful, difficult states and then blame ourselves for experiencing it. Something I do a lot, besides softening the tone of the note, instead of thinking, I'm thinking, just being real neutral, I'm thinking. And notice the commentary. When you treat someone else that harshly, I'll often imagine when I'm in a really knotted up state and hating, hating myself, blaming myself. You knew how to do this right for God's sake after all these years, this wouldn't be happening. I think, if the person next to me was going through that and I knew it, would I think that? Is that how I would relate to that person's suffering? I mean, I wouldn't be in this job for very long. <laughs> I'm sure the people are going and it occurs to me, you know, I always say, gosh, that's really hard. That's really painful. So turn that around to oneself. I used to have a, yeah, so, so soften the tone of the note. Notice the running commentary. Soften that as well. Then I used to have one really harsh running commentary that I, I started to note it as traffic cops, but actually drill sergeant would have been much more appropriate. It was like, when you didn't get back to the breath, you didn't feel that sensation closely enough, go back and do it again. Just on and on and on. I saw from that one and you start, it's okay. It's okay. It helps a lot. To, this is actually, it's a little conscious, you know, but to notice the lack of compassion, the negativity and ill will towards oneself, and intentionally soften it, bring in feeling of compassion. It changes the whole tone of practice. And after a while, it's not this sense of, oh, I should be compassionate. But as the Buddha said, what the mind frequently thinks about, that's where it dwells the compassion begins to arise quite naturally. I just want to read this one kind of personification of working with our demons and compassion. So a story about Milarepa, a great Tibetan yogi who meditated for years up in caves in Tibet. It's really about how to greet our demons with deep compassion for the suffering engendered. Well, this is quite personified. So he was up meditating in his cave, Mula, and his mind became blissful, and he carried some wood back up to the cave. 
When he arrived there, he found in the cave seven demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding sampa, and some sat performing various magical tricks. It's kind of like what happens when you come back from lunch and sit on the pillow and seven demons spring up and you're just blissful, you know, and minding your own business. As soon as he saw them, he became frightened. So he meditated, he uttered a subjugating mantra, he performed a gaze, he aroused his deity's presence. Then he meditated on compassion and friendliness, but was unable to pacify them. He thought, well, they might be local deities of the place, and I've been here for years, but I've not praised them. So he sang a song of praise to the place. So three of the demons went away, but Nilo was unable to make the other four go away. Realizing that the four demons were magical obstacles, he sang a song of confidence, saying, it's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. <laughs> From time to time, we should converse. Three of them vanished like a rainbow. The remaining demon performed an imposing dance, and Mila thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. <laughs> so he sang a song of his view, the pinnacle of his realization, ending it with, a demon like you does not intimidate me. If a demon like you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk about our differences. <laughs> I feel compassion for this spirit. Then he prays to Lord Bhajradhara, grant your blessings so that this lowly one, meaning himself, this lowly one, may have complete compassion. And then with friendliness and complete compassion, without concern for his body, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon could not eat him and vanish like a rainbow. So out of great compassion for ourselves and our demons, can we just place our heads in our mouth? They might vanish and they might not. This <laughs> 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 one other thing I'd like to share from my own experience of compassion and experiencing a slight growth in compassion is that as we allow compassion, non-harming, towards ourselves, towards our own pain, that quite naturally it opens up our hearts and minds to compassion for others in the world, for others who we come in contact with. So I find when we don't need to shut off to our own pain, then we don't need to shut off to others' pain. We really can be there for it. And this is really the arising, that, that quivering of the heart in response to pain that is sometimes given as a definition of compassion. And another thing I found so interesting, again, working with, with pain, 
on compassion, that how our own pain, strong physical or emotional, mental pain, when we're kind of caught in resisting it, which is natural, it seems so separated, so isolated. You know, I'm really alone in my pain, really disconnected. Working with this, as compassion comes in towards myself, towards this experience, the sense of empathy and connection with my pain, it grows to others, a sense of empathy and connection. And what had been a very isolating experience turns into one that dissolves the seeming sense of separation that we have. And often, I know in practice, many people uh, talk about it, report it, and I've experienced it myself, how what has been quite a personal pain that we're fighting, and we open to it with compassion, it turns into an experience of universal pain, and a strong sense of experience of our interconnectedness grows out of it. This one last example of, not a routine example, but once I was in the hospital, I was lying there just kind of, you know, wishing I wasn't there and lost in my pain. And something, I was in a room with three other women, and something just kind of opened out my, my attention from my own experience, sort of softened to it, and became aware of how much pain was going on in the three ladies around me. And then the awareness just kept spreading. How many rooms were there in this one hospital? How many hospitals? There's five hospitals just in the town I was in. And how many towns? And just on and on and on. And rather than that seeming overwhelming, there was a sense of that and being able to acknowledge with kindness and compassion my pain. I opened to the others and the others and quite a deep sense of the universality of all of us. And that, far from being overwhelmingly painful, can actually bring quite a sense of peace and joy and acceptance. So these three wholesome attitudes of mind, non-greed, metta, goodwill, compassion, <coughs> non-harming, they develop naturally as we continue to investigate in each moment, the nature of our mind and body, the nature of what's arising. And more and more, they become a natural mode of thought, of intention, a natural mode of being, not some forced idea. And again, it's so important to realize that this reaches far beyond our individual self. That how our mind is inclined, the thoughts affect our actions, and that really does affect everyone that we come in contact with. One last story, just showing the power of one person's clarity of intention and action. Thich Nhat Hanh has written about, in speaking of the boat people, the ones who escaped from Vietnam, all crowded on some little boat, and many of them have had a lot of trouble with storms, aside from the pirates, but they're small, under-equipped boats and big storms at sea. And he said in talking of, I don't know how many, hundreds or thousands of refugees, together they've come to see that the boats that had the best chance of survival, the ones that made it through the best, were the, when there was a storm or difficulty, were the ones where even one person remained calm. Even one person remained calm had the 
thoughts, this intention of inner peace that could lead to appropriate action, and it like infects, inspires other people. So our actions, which are informed by our thoughts, which are formed by our understanding, have great power in the world. As one teacher of mine said to me recently, it's a paraphrase, never underestimate the value of what you're doing here. That's it for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.